Welcome to the Plenty of Gas podcast, the podcast with plenty of great Australian stories. I'm your host Luke Sutton and today's story we continue on with the Port Arthur Massacre. But before we do that I thought I'd ask you a question which I'll answer at the end of the podcast. And my question for you today is this. Now you've probably seen the movie Crocodile Dundee which was loosely based on a real person called Rodney Ansell who happened to get himself involved in a police shootout. My question is, what was the reason for that shootout? And I'll make it multiple choice. Was it A, because he didn't want to surrender his guns to police? Was it B, because he was an amphetamine user and had a psychotic episode? Was it C, because he was sick and tired of being tortured by the Freemasons? Or was it D, all of the above? And as I said, I'll answer that at the end of the podcast. But now... Time for today's story. Well, hopefully you have already listened to the last podcast. If you haven't, may I suggest that you do so, because we will soon be going back to various parts of that podcast and fill in the blanks, so to speak. To quickly recap, though, a man named Martin Bryant, on Sunday the 28th of April 1996, first shot two people surnamed Martin at their house and then proceeded to travel to a busy cafe at Port Arthur and shoot the place up, killing so far 20 people. Now I made a mistake in the last podcast and stated that a guy called Belasco was filming outside, and that you can clearly hear all the gunshots from that video. I got the names mixed up. The video where you can hear only gunshots emanating from the cafe are from two different tapes. One is the Wilkinson tape, which records for 15 seconds and has 17 shots on it, and the other is the Tony video, which records 21 gunshots in 25 seconds. The Belasco video I mentioned before will be appearing in this episode. I have also prepared a small audio clip of one of the survivors of the cafe. It is as follows. We've had a gunman run him off on the Port Arthur historic site. Uh, that's 85Ks uh, from Hobart. Happened mid afternoon. There are at least uh, 12 confirmed dead, if not 22. There's a further 15 injured. Everyone's such a breakdown. What do you understand he may have done? <sighs> Kill lots of people. Any idea why? No, no idea. Any idea who he was? No, no idea. Not a local, I don't think. I looked up from the table, walked towards the front door of the restaurant, and uh, as I did, this guy walked in. Long blonde hair and shot dead one guy that was sitting at the nearest table. He then proceeded to shoot everybody at that table. The whole time that, that man was in there, he did not say one word, he never ran, he walked everywhere, just shooting people. At that time, he must have seen somebody that was still alive and walked towards that person. He yelled out, no, no, he then shot him. Another person was also moving nearby was screaming he just walked up and shot her. That person I cannot understand. The first time when I saw him with that gun just walk up to somebody and shoot him dead from about three feet away. Something I'll never forget. He then walked back past us and I thought he was going to kill us. But instead he walked through the door. Hesitated for about 15 minutes and then, I'm sorry, 15 seconds, perhaps, and reloaded his gun 
and went outside. We now continue. Bridget Cook, kitchen manager, was inside the cafe when the gunshots began. One of the staff members burst through the kitchen doors and warned that there was someone inside shooting people. All the kitchen staff then bolted outside through the kitchen back door and headed towards the tree line for safety. Miss Bridget Cook, however, thought that others really also needed to be warned about the impending danger, though not having eyewitnessed it herself. She travelled around to the front of the building and began to warn huge groups of people who were congregated outside as to what was going on. While she was doing this, Martin Bryant steps outside onto the veranda. He pauses for a little while while taking a stance that makes him appear that he is now basking in the glory of the sheer pandemonium which he has created. People are running absolutely everywhere to try and seek some type of cover against this deranged madman. He now smiles as he raises the rifle for the first time to his shoulder and begins to aim the gun like a sniper. Witnesses within the cafe stated that he simply fired all shots from the hip. He didn't run, he just walked everywhere shooting people. He didn't say a word, he didn't need to as his gun was doing all the talking for him. Because of the location being a bay area, the gunshots that went off began to sound more like cannon fire. He fired indiscriminately at anything that moved. He must have thought to himself, this is a lot more fun. I now have moving targets. After a number of shots fired, and all resulting in misses, he began to make his way down quite swiftly, almost jogging, to the front of the buses parked outside in the car park. At that time, there was actually a large group of people sheltering between the various buses, and as Bryant started to descend upon them, they then began to make their way to the rear of the buses, and then in small pockets or groups, make a run for it in the direction of the shoreline. The problem with hiding behind or around the buses is that they obstructed everyone's view and no one was certain whether Bryant was close by or not. The first victim outside was one of the bus drivers, Mr Royce William Thompson, aged 59 from Kingston Beach, Tasmania. He was making his way along the outside of the bus when he was shot in the back. He fell to the ground and then staggered to the rear of the coach, crawling underneath, but still died as a result of his internal injuries anyway. Strangely enough, people reported that the silence was just as scary as the gunshots. When things were silent, you just did not know where he actually was. At any moment, the next head around the corner could have been his. The whole experience was reported as nerve-wracking. Bridget Cook decided that she really needed to locate his whereabouts for her own sake and others. So she stood out from her hiding spot behind one of the buses. Big mistake. She found him. Face to face. He was at the other end of the bus and now that she has stepped out, he spotted her. Before she could retreat and duck back for cover... He has already raised his gun and fired. It happened so quick 
she did not have time to react. Brian simply saw movement and shuddered. No other thought process was needed. Even with such quick reactions, he still successfully shot her, hitting her in both legs, which made her fall backwards in pain behind the bus again. Absolutely terrified, she takes a moment to realise what has actually happened and the damage that has been done. Even though she knows she's not yet dead, she soon will be, as the killer must be no more than 15 to 20 walking paces away. She needs to do something, and she needs to do it fast. She first takes off her apron and ties it around her leg as a tourniquet, cutting off the flow of the blood. This gives her enough mobility to try and get out of there. Even with excruciating pain, she musters up all the effort she can to make a last final effort, a beeline, to hide behind a little guardhouse behind one of the buses. She runs and runs and runs, and when she gets there, she collapses in utter exhaustion, unable to move again. Still not having looked back, she doesn't know for certain that Bryant never saw where she went. She closes her eyes and prays. The truth is, Bryant never saw where she went. She had simply vanished and her instincts, therefore, undoubtedly saved her. A few other people also tried to run to safety. They were trying to get into one of the coaches before Brian spotted them. Unfortunately, they were less successful. Brian pointed his rifle to this large group and fired a few times. One bullet struck Mrs. Winifred Joyce Appland, aged 58, from Bankshire Park, South Australia, in the right side of her body and face. Her fatality was instant. The rest of the people, though, were able to board the bus. But as we will find out later, that was probably not a good thing. Strangely enough, some people who had originally made it to safety, reaching the shoreline, decided to double back, as there were rumours that Brian was heading that way. A few of those people decided to head back towards the buses for safety. But unfortunately, that is where the gunman really was. The confusion for Brian's location all stems from the fact that the gunshots echoed in the natural amphitheatre. So much so that some even thought that there may have been two gunmen and not just one. So not knowing where he actually was, as the sound travelled and travelled, made the whole experience feel like a deadly game of cat and mouse, just the way that Bryant liked it. One person who tried to double back was Mrs. Jeanette Quinn, aged 50, from Bacino, Tasmania. Bryant sneaked up behind her and shot her in the bottom. It caused her to fall to the ground, practically at the same spot where the coach driver fell earlier. But because of where he shot her, she was actually still alive, just partially paralysed. Brian then took a shot at people trying to make a run for it towards the foreshore. This is when our Mr. Doug Huffinson was severely shot in the arm and was knocked down as a result from the force of the shot. However, he got up and continued to stagger towards the jetty. Brian, amazingly, did not pursue him. Instead, he stopped and walked back to his car. 
People watched him from the coach windows and from the various positions they had taken cover. They saw him open up the boot of the car and place his gun inside. Is that the end, people wanted? Is it finally over? Is he leaving? Their hopes were immediately shattered when they all witnessed him take out yet another gun. He was just changing guns. Everybody's fears were heightened when they saw that, and rightfully so. Bryant may have been getting frustrated at not hitting many of the targets he was aiming for, or because he was running out of ammunition. Out of the boot of his car, he now took out a .308 SLR self-loading rifle. This is a military-style weapon, which he had plenty of ammunition for. He fired it a couple times trying to kill more people that were around, and then for some reason got back in his car and sat behind the wheel for a little while. Everyone's eyes were absolutely glued to this yellow Volvo. Why isn't he driving off? Hasn't he had enough? The answer to that question was no. As he got back out of it and again proceeded to head back to the coaches. I guess he was not intending to leave when he knew for certain that there were still easy targets he could shoot, especially around those buses. As he walked along the coaches, he again came across his earlier victim which he had shot in the bottom and paralysed, Mrs Quinn. Realising she was still alive, he again points his gun at her, this time shooting her in the lower back, making it all that more painful. Brian then boarded one of the buses, the red coach line bus, in the hope to find another easy target. Fortunately, no one had sought refuge on it, and so the bus was completely empty. From inside this bus, however, Brian saw others hiding in the bus next to him. He pointed and now fired into the Transotway coach. The shot successfully killed Mrs. Elveronda Gaylard, aged 48, from Hamlin Heights, Victoria, hitting her in the arm and then the chest. Another passenger of the same coach, Mr. Gordon Francis, now feared that Bryant may soon be thinking of entering into their coach. He decided that he needed to come out of hiding, make his way down the aisle, and try and close the front door. Unfortunately, he never made it. As soon as Bryant saw him, he fired, hitting Gordon in the shoulder blade, completely shattering it making him collapse to the floor in absolute agony. Mr Neville Quinn, who was originally with the large group, with his wife at the rear of the coach, which Bryant was at first firing upon, eventually realised that his wife was no longer in this group. He retraced his steps and eventually found her. Now witnessing the damage done to his wife, the second time Bryant had shot her. She was unconscious, but was still alive, and she needed help, and she needed it fast. Mr Quinn was desperately trying to help her as much as he could, because he didn't want her to die. Eventually, while trying to administer first aid, he realised that another shot had been fired, and that it now had been directed to him. He turned and saw Bryant staring down at him with the muzzle of his gun. Mr Quinn immediately ran to the front of the coach, but then realised that Brian would probably just go the other way to try and catch up with him, so he decided to double back. 
This gave Quinn a bit more distance from his pursuer, but Bryant was hot on his tail. Several shots fired, all missing him by inches. Both men weaving in and out, back and forth around the coaches. Bryant's pursuit of Mr. Quinn was all filmed by an American man named James Belasco. Bryant at some point saw James filming him from a distance and took a shot at him, but missed and hit a nearby car. In this video, Bryant is clearly wearing a dark jacket and light grey trousers. Mr. Quinn, when he thought he had lost Bryant, boarded one of the coaches, moved down it a little way and sheltered behind one of the seats. He knew that Bryant was younger and faster, and his only real hope of survival was to hide. Unfortunate for him, however, Bryant had in fact seen him enter the coach. Bryant casually followed him in, slowly walking down the aisle until he was towering over his victim. He pointed the muzzle of the rifle right up against Quinn's head. And just before he pulled the trigger, he said, No one gets away from me. And fired. As amazing as this may sound, as the trigger was being pulled, at that exact moment, Mr. Quinn instinctively moved his head forward, and the bullet missed his head and struck him in the neck, causing Mr. Quinn a temporary paralysis. The injury still made Brian think that Mr. Quinn was in fact dead, and left, when in truth, he wasn't. After a short time, about 10 minutes, Mr. Quinn regained movement in his length, and walked off the coach back to his wife. Incredibly, just as he gets to his wife, Mrs. Quinn becomes conscious again. Tears flow freely from both. Mr. Quinn uses this opportunity to express his undying love to his wife. He gives her a small hug and then holds her hand, rubbing it ever so softly. But sadly, still, there is nothing Mr. Quinn can do. Fifteen minutes later, Mrs. Quinn died in the safety of her husband's arms. Most people that were there claimed that Bryant was calm, unrushed, and never showed any signs of emotion to anybody. What those people did not know is that he also had a semi-automatic Daewoo shotgun with a 15-round magazine fitted on him that day. But Bryant was often frightened by the use of this firearm, and so he chose not to use it at all. It simply remained in the boot of the Volvo. There was also another video being filmed from Mr. McLeod, but I'm not actually sure what that video exactly had on it. Maybe just the sound of relentless gunshots going off. No one really had any time to gain their senses. Some, even still, were contemplating to themselves if it was just a reenactment or not. People were largely defenceless against this gun-yielding lunatic. The echo effect in the valley made it sound like they were actually surrounded by multiple gunmen, and trying to flee by going out in the open only heightened their chances of being shot. 
Bryant, after leaving Mr. Quinn, left the bus, fired his gun a couple more times at various targets, and then went back to his car. He must have got in the back seat of his car and wound down the window, and with the muzzle of the gun pointing outside, tried to shoot a few more people, according to some eyewitnesses. After that, he eventually got into the driver's seat, started his car, and began to leave the car park for good. As he drove away, people said he started to hoot his horn, smile, and wave goodbye. But this raises a very interesting question. Why did Brian leave now, when there are still easy targets to get? A question we will attempt to answer next time. Well, I hope you have enjoyed the second telling of the official account of the Port Arthur Massacre. The story of Quinn is definitely a sad one. However, even though there was nothing he could do to save his wife's life, it must be noted that if Bryant hadn't been distracted by Mr. Quinn, then in all likelihood he would have probably just walked on over to the Transaltway coach where he knew people now were and killed them all. Mr. Quinn then can definitely take refuge in knowing that his gallant actions undoubtedly saved lives, though not the ones he originally intended. Mr. Quinn's courage, love and empathy remains a role model for us all. At least Mr. Quinn got to communicate how much he loved his wife before she died. All families likewise should remember this simple fact, that praise is best served while a person is living, as no man can read the praise written upon his tombstone. One final question often gets raised. Will there ever be a mass shooting in Australia similar to the one Tasmania experienced? While this concept may seem slim, thanks to the stronger gun legislation introduced as a result of the massacre, statistics have been argued back and forth as to the its effectiveness against gun violence. I'm not a firm believer in statistics, as they can be catered to support any argument. While I do understand that some who know in themselves that they would never abuse gun ownership, and to them gun laws seem to be a unnecessary restriction to their freedom, sort of like a cage, personally I find it all depends on the context. For instance, if I was diving and there was a shark outside, then I wouldn't look at the cage as a restriction, but more as a protection. Similarly, we live in an environment where mental illness is rampant and family values often severely lacking. People many times display uncontrolled bursts of emotion. To limit or make gun ownership harder to obtain to these sorts of people is not necessarily a restriction, but serves more as protection. However, having said that, the face of technology is constantly changing and so are the ways to misuse it. This was clearly demonstrated by Cody Wilson, who successfully manufactured a fully working semi-automatic weapon using just a 3D printer. This means that anyone who owns a 3D printer can in fact become a weapons dealer. If governments have largely lost the fight against pornography being widespread and easily achievable, then what makes you honestly think that they are going to do any better monitoring the manufacturing of weapons and stop them from being easily accessible?
Yes, thanks to 3D printing, anyone can manufacture the same guns used in the Port Arthur Massacre. Therefore, the question is not if the massacre will happen again, but when will it happen again? I guess I'll leave that for Professor Moriarty to decide. Well, join me next time as we do our first feedback and updates podcast, and then we will continue on with this story. Bryant gets worse. Now time to answer the question I left you with. I've noticed that since America has had some recent trouble with shootings, more and more emphasis has been focused on Australia's already established gun controls and its overall effects. Numerous websites have now been highlighting a story about Rodney Ansell, who was involved in a very violent shootout. The cause of it, most often stated, to be that he did not want to surrender his guns to police during the gun buyback scheme. Now, may I be the first to completely shoot holes in this theory? Other than the tragedy happened during the gun buyback, the gun buyback had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was just ridiculous made-up tripe born through one media source at the time, which is now being used by gun lobbyists and presented as solid fact, when clearly it is not. While I do appreciate that gun enthusiasts need to develop mental support, to do this through the spreading of lies, consciously or not, does not flatter your cause, but makes you look only desperate. So what was the real reason for the shootout? Well, let's go back in time to October 1st, 1954, when Rodney William Ansell was born in Mergon, Queensland. He was raised by George and Eva in amongst three other children. At the age of 15, he moved to Northern Territory, where he made a reasonable living hunting wild buffalo. In his spare time, he became fluent with the Arnhem Land Aborigines, speaking their language and learning all of their bush skills which culminated with him being recognised through a full initiation as one of them. Little did he know how crucial those bush skills would soon become. Eight years later, in May 1977, he out of the blue informed his current girlfriend Lorraine that he would be away for a few months on a fishing trip along the Victoria River located in the remotest parts of Northern Territory. He travelled alone with his two dogs, in an 18-foot motorboat towing a small dinghy behind. Just outside the mouth of the river, his boat was capsized by what he claimed was a whale. Luckily, though the main boat sank, he and his two bull terriers were able to get aboard the small dinghy. He was not able to salvage many goods at all. The only equipment he could save was a rifle, a knife, one can of peas, one can of powdered milk, two swags, and a soggy box of matches. To make matters worse, one of his dogs now suffered a broken leg. His situation, therefore, was undoubtedly quite desperate. Having drifted for quite some time, he eventually washed up on a small island located outside the mouth of the Fitzmaurice River, also in Northern Territory. But this is nowhere near where he said to others he was heading. Plus, he told them he would be away for a few months, meaning the chance of a rescue operation being sent out for him was nil. Stranded 200 kilometres away from main human settlement with no fresh water, 
was a situation that was as bad as it gets. He decided that he needed to find water, so he started to travel up the crocodile-infested river. Because he only had one oar, it took him two whole days to get above the saltwater range and find fresh water. From this location he began to hunt wild buffalo to feed both himself and his dogs. He occasionally even began to drink the buffalo's blood as a substitute for water when he needed to. When he needed sugar, he would cleverly follow a bee to its hive and then ransack its honeycomb. To remain safe and protected from all of the night predators, such as dingoes, he would sleep way up high in a tree fork and share it with an 8 foot brown tree snake. Most notably, at one point, he was forced to decapitate the head of a 16 foot crocodile that ambushed him. He kept the head of the crocodile as a memento, a souvenir. He was therefore evidently a rugged man, a resourceful man, someone who was tough, someone who knew the bush and spoke its wild language. After being stranded alone for 56 days, he began to hear the tinkering of bells. He traced the location of its source and discovered two Aboriginal stockmen and their cattle manager, Luke McCall. They were completely startled to find someone so far out stranded in the Never Never. Once back home, he tried to keep the ordeal to himself, but word got out and the press got wind of it. Newspapers hailed him as Australia's Robinson Crusoe. He was given worldwide publicity, appearing in a 1979 documentary called To Fight the Wild, and a book with the same name. Both relived the adventure, explaining in detail how being out in the wilderness alone can change a man. He confessed that to pass time, many of his days were spent writing poetry, not knowing if they would be his last words. Knowledge of this made him even more popular with the public than he was before. This popularity was capitalised by an interview taken in Sydney in 1981 by a Mr Michael Parkinson for the popular show, at the time, Parkinson. Rodney just didn't seem to gel with city life. For one thing, he still walked everywhere barefoot. Secondly, when executives placed Rodney in a five-star hotel for the night, Rodney found it to be more comfortable to still sleep on the floor. He was also mystified by what we call luxuries. For instance, the hotel room's bidet was like a strange animal from another planet to him. If this is starting to sound a lot like the character of Mick Dundee in the movie Crocodile Dundee, you would be right. He was the original inspiration which Paul Hogan used to help create the character. Regardless of all this fame, even when he met and married a radio operator named Joanne Oss, together they chose to still live isolated under a basic canvas sheet out in the outback. Here they had no electricity, no running water of any kind, their only friend was a radio, and their meals were always supplied by campfire. This was the life that Rodney liked to live. In a nutshell, simple. Together they bore two sons, Callum and Sean, and it was only when the youngest son was four that Rodney decided that his current abode was unsuitable to raise children up in. So in 1985, Rodney borrowed some money and bought himself a cattle station, doing again what he was familiar with. 
he also had a brilliant idea of wanting to start up his own real-life Crocodile Dundee adventure tour. What should have turned out to be a sure thing with his cattle herd and adventure tour, affording him a comfortable life, ended in disaster. First of all, Ansel, though he tried a number of times, never actually was able to benefit from the movie Crocodile Dundee, either by royalties or in name. Paul Hogan and those associated from the film, though confessing having used several main factors of Rodney's story without his permission, ironically never gave him the same courtesy. Neither did they allow Rodney official recognition as the original Dundee, and threatened him serious legal action if he was ever brave enough to try. Secondly, the government had just created a controversial bovine eradication program called the BTEC, of which the main emphasis being disease control. As a result, Ansel was actually forced to kill 3,000 of his cattle, and while his neighbours were all compensated for their losses, he claimed he never was. To further add salt to injury, his property quickly became overwhelmed with mimosa pigra weeds, rendering it completely useless. Without the money to fight the weed invasion, he was forced to sell his property. After 15 years of marriage, the hardships causing poverty, unemployment and depression resulted in divorce. Rodney's only answer to all these compounded problems was to eventually turn to drugs. He started smoking, growing and selling marijuana just to make ends meet and though this may have seemed to be a quick solution to his current problems, it would soon turn out to be a couple steps away from a dangerous cliff. First of all, the drug scene introduced him to Cherie Ann Hewson, who was also a fellow drug user. Friends of Rodney noticed that regardless of his own claims that he was in control of his life, evidence began to prove otherwise. Friends noted that Rodney was becoming more and more and more dependent on marijuana. When this was not enough, he ventured onto other more powerful drug-like amphetamines. Now, the destructive processes of speed were really beginning to take a serious toll on Rodney's mental health. But he just wouldn't stop. To make matters worse, Cherie Ann Hewson grew up in a family of Freemasons. When Rodney met Miss Hewson, she would spill a tragic story as to why she ran away from home. Through leading questions and coercion, Miss Hewson began to relate to Rodney dormant, repressed memories of her childhood. She claimed that her family in Warragul, Victoria, along with other Freemasons, were sacrificing eight-year-old children, which she herself had participated in and witnessed. So she ran away from home not wanting to be a part of this sick and twisted group ritual. She was now a fugitive, someone who was always on the run, as her family would be searching frantically for her, knowing that at any moment she could expose them, as she knew the real truth. Rodney completely believed her story, fearing that if he did not help hide her, then the Freemasons would eventually get her. Together they reasoned that they couldn't go to the cops because for one thing, she was an accessory to murder, even though she was a child herself when it was committed, and secondly, because the Freemasons have people everywhere, 
even in the police force, and they wouldn't know for sure if the cops they went and saw were in fact Freemason. Rodney decided to hide her at a remote property he owned up near Kakadu, which was only accessible by four-wheel drive. This way, he could protect her properly from the relentless, shadowy Freemasons and could see them coming. Unfortunately, one night, three bow and arrow hunters accidentally went into Rodney's property. Because they were wearing night vision goggles, Rodney was convinced that they were the Freemasons finally out to get her. To make matters worse, one of his sons had not arrived on time for his expected prearranged visit to camp, and for some reason, Rodney jumped to the massive paranoid conclusion that he must have been kidnapped and was being held hostage or ransom in exchange for her. He sent his other son to go to town and get him and bring him back, but then never heard from either son again. Now, the thought of both sons in danger started to fuel a psychotic rage. They rang everyone they knew to try and get in contact with either son. They rang the girlfriend Tamara, the local school, the local shop, and even the police, but no one was answering their phones. This just confirmed what they already knew. The Freemasons had them. They also feared that the Freemasons were in fact closing in on them, so they decided to leave the property and head to a friend's house known as the Barlows. They asked him if they could swap cars so that the Freemasons would have a bit more trouble recognising them, but Barlow declined the offer. They then travelled to another friend's house known as the Toy Man and asked him the same question, but he also declined their offer. Undeterred, they travelled into town, to where Tamara, Sean's girlfriend, lived. They knocked the door and the parents came out. Rodney asked if Tamara was home. The parents replied that she had gone out. Rodney then bid them farewell, and unknown to them, kept their house under surveillance, hoping she would return. But she never did. Late that afternoon, they left and visited another friend, but he also was not at home. Since he was a very close friend, they decided to break in and make themselves at home. They both helped themselves to the fridge since they were so thirsty. They then began to notice peculiar things about the house. First, the dog was locked in the shed. Second, family photos were missing. Third, the bed was unmade. Fourth, the phone didn't work. And lastly, what they were drinking started to taste funny. Oh my god! They had just walked into a Freemason trap. It just dawned on them that the drinks were drugged. The Freemasons, realising who their friends were, must have kidnapped them and drugged the house as a booby trap waiting outside to ambush them. They immediately left stealing two medical kits just in case they found their son still alive after being tortured by the Freemasons. They then drove to another friend's house to see if the same thing had happened there. When arriving, they were disconcerted to find a large, dark grey van about 300 metres from their friend's house. No doubt the Freemasons were here, they thought, somewhere, and hopefully their sons. They knocked on their friend's house, were invited in, and had a drink with them, and then left. Both Ansel and Hewson noted the same strange taste in the drinks offered in this house. Their house was therefore undoubtedly drugged, and the Freemasons were outside waiting to pounce in. 
Rodney walked back to the house to try and convince his friend Robinson of the impending danger of Freemasons. He did this outside as the house was undoubtedly bugged by Freemasons. Rodney wanted his close friend Robinson to believe the story, so much that he slightly altered events by stating that a person actually went up to him at his house and told him that they had his sons hostage and was willing to trade them for his missus, the one they really wanted. This news presented to Robinson really began to rattle his nerves. Rodney pleaded with Robinson that he too needed to leave the house before the Freemasons got him. Robinson dismissed the idea, concluding that he would be safer in his own house than anywhere else. After a couple of tries of trying to convince Robinson to leave, Rodney gave up and left. Rodney and Houston drove a couple hundred metres up the road and then pulled over. Rodney was convinced that it was up to him to save his dumb friend from the Freemasons. He took out his gun and walked back. When getting close, he began to fire shots willy-nilly at various farmhouses, probably just in an attempt to convince his friend that he needed to escape. For some reason, he chose to walk down Kentish Road and onto the property of number 47, which was owned by a Mr. Brian Williams. Rodney shot out all the floodlights of the house and started shouting various loud remarks about Freemasons coming. This made neighbours both call the police and try and intervene. One neighbour, Dave Hobden, who heard the shots, thought that he should drive up to the, the Williams house and find out for himself what all the commotion was about, since the police were located quite some distance away. Bad idea. As he drove up to the property, he had his front windshield fired upon, sending broken glass into one of his eyes. Rodney mistaken the mysterious vehicle coming out of nowhere as one of the Freemasons out to get him. Dave fell out of his car and dived into the Williams house. As he tried to retreat, shots were still being fired upon him. Rodney then saw the car as an easy getaway from the surrounding Freemasons. The thought of someone stealing their friend's car made Brian Williams come out of his house and make a run for Rodney swinging a baseball bat. Rodney simply responded with more gunfire, one bullet striking and tearing off one of Brian's fingers. Rodney, startled, inexplicably left. Both injured men then used this opportunity to inform the police. Both testified that they had never seen or knew this man that was shooting at them. Why he chose to attack them is really a complete mystery. Maybe it was just the floodlights that attracted him to the house. In any case, it was definitely them he was now after, because Rodney came back a second time and unloaded more gunfire. Police responded by setting up a small makeshift roadblock in the hope that they could stop the shooter from travelling elsewhere. But the truth is, there were many escape routes and the police knew that. They simply didn't have the manpower to cover every avenue. Rodney could have easily taken any number of routes to escape and be on his merry way. In fact, the police, believing that their roadblock was already insufficiently compromised and had not prevented the guilty party from escaping, began to even dismantle the roadblock. But on the 3rd of August 1999, at 10.45am, 
on the intersection of Stewart Highway and Old Bino Road. It was Ansel who crept up to the two policemen from the bush and started firing. The very first shot fired deflected off a car and killed Sergeant Glenn Anthony Hewitson even though he was wearing a bulletproof vest at the time. The other partner returned fire resulting in a full on shootout for about 5 minutes with even another territory response group arriving on the scene. Rodney no doubt thought that he had now stumbled on the Freemasons' secret army or something. Gunfire was blazing everywhere. Eventually it was Hewitson's partner that fired the fatal shot which killed Rodney Ansel. The autopsy later revealed that Ansel had been actually shot 30 times in total, the last bullet being the fatal one. Think about it. Once a national hero, at one point labelled the man of the year, now just a dead, crazed madman. Ansel was still honoured and given an Aboriginal burial at Mount Cat, according to his wishes. While at face value it may seem that this guy had incredible bad luck, the truth is Ronnie's worst enemy was Rodney. The reason why he got stuck out in the middle of nowhere is not because he was fishing, but because he was doing something illegal. He was poaching crocodiles, which carries a $2,000 fine and or 6 months imprisonment. Since he was lying about his motive, why should anyone trust all the other what seems to be embellished parts of his adventure? Did a whale really destroy his boat, or was it a crocodile he was attacking? How can one really sleep with an 8 foot brown tree snake when they are noted for being highly aggressive creatures that bite multiple times, yet no puncture marks? One source claimed it was really just a green snake, which is harmless. And my favourite part is how did he follow a bee to its hive? One source claimed that he was doing it by bee kiting. If you have never heard of bee kiting, it's when you tie a piece of cotton around a bee's leg and treat it like an animal on a leash. Bee kiting, though cruel, can easily be seen on YouTube. They first catch a bee in some type of container. They then freeze it for 10 minutes in that container. They take it out and start tying a piece of cotton around one of its legs. And then they blow on the bee to thaw it out. But apparently Rodney Ansell performed the same trick and tied a long piece of cotton from his shirt around the bee's leg and then had the bee lead him back to its hive. But he did it without freezing it. How? What, the bee never stung him? Some even question if Rodney was even in any trouble at all. Because if he was, then surely he would have just followed the river. No wonder then Paul Hogan didn't want his character, Mick Dundee, to be tarnished by being associated with Rodney Ansell, whose epic tales were beginning to fail miserably under closer scrutiny. In court, it was discovered that Rodney Ansell's account, which he himself made, to fight the wild, in no way resembles the made-up story of Mick Dundee, when you take into consideration all the things that are not similar. Therefore, Ansel was just trying to get royalties he was not rightfully entitled to. Because of his demeanour in the law courts, neither would they now let him either benefit 
in name. Likewise, his cattle station also failed because of his greed. It didn't fail because of the cattle being slaughtered, but it failed because the weeds were not being attended to, which he no longer had the money to take care of, as he was spending an outrageous amount of time and cost in legal fees trying to win an unwinnable case. For someone who said that he found himself when out in the wild and discovered that the best policy was to keep life simple, hardly ever lived by that standard. Friends, to live a simple life, one does not have to live life as a hermit or be isolated in a region where humans dare to tread. To keep one's life simple, one must keep their expectations in all things simple. Only then is a person happy. You can probably see now why I find it so strange that gun lobbyists use this story to promote anti-gun control, when in truth it does anything but that. I will finish off by quoting one of Ansel's own poems, which he wrote when stranded out in the wild. I have flouted the wild, I have followed her here, fearless, familiar, alone. Yet the end is near, and the day will come when I shall be overthrown. Ansel may have won the fight towards the wild, but he definitely lost the battle when it came to his heart and mind. A survival story much, much more important. For the record, Sean and Callum Ansel were not abducted by Freemasons, nor were anyone else. As for Miss Houston's story about murdering Freemasons, one would assume that the police looked into the matter, and when questioned where the bodies were buried, it yielded no further results. Miss Hewson claimed, though, that her family had a very efficient method of getting rid of bodies. So, is there a grain of truth in all of Miss Hewson's delusions? I guess I'll leave that for Dan Brown to decide. Well, that concludes today's podcast. Now, if you have a request, question or information you would like to share on Ronnie Ansel or the Port Arthur Massacre, you can do so. My email address is plentyofgas, one word, at y7mail.com or kyzka at y7mail.com. Kiska being my nickname. I'm also on Facebook, so feel free to post a message on my timeline. Well, thank you for listening, sharing, caring, liking and feedback. Take care. Until next time. Bye for now.